Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. We're still off schedule, which is obvious to anyone who listens In fact, tonight, our sister Liz called our parents, apparently, to say hi. Mm. And she asked when our next episode was going to be. She could ask one of us, like, they're going to know. She asked them to ask me. She was afraid to ask me directly, apparently. Yeah, who can blame her? Okay, do you want to just get into it? Yes, I don't even know what you're doing. You don't have any updates or anything? No. Although, one thing I wanted to say is I noticed reading the paper from this weekend, catching up, a guy that was convicted, I think he was convicted of manslaughter, because he got about seven years in prison a couple years ago. And his defense attorney was our Matt Nichols. His conviction was overturned. He's going to be in jail until his bail hearing. I think it's Friday. He's white. And I didn't want to cover this because of Matt yeah, being yes. involved. But also just because it's right in the same city. That uh, It's a small city. What happened was the young man who, who was the victim, I can't remember his first name, his last name is Muse. He's Somali, a black young man. This family is white, Italian, American. Mm-hmm. The daughter was dating this this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in the house. He was supposed to leave at 1 a.m. He did not leave when he, he was supposed to. He was to. Po- posted by who? By her parents? The parents. Right. Yes, she's, parents. she was only 16 or okay. 17. And he was too. He was young. They were teenagers. He was over there all the time. He's right. her boyfriend. The older brother was recently back from wherever. I don't know. He had been in the military and stuff. Mm-hmm. But anyways, the boyfriend did not want to leave, apparently. Supposedly, the father and the older brother tried to shove him out the door and he wouldn't leave. Why? Why? I don't know. Like, why wouldn't he leave? See, I don't know how true this story is. It doesn't ring true to me. I know. So then, instead of calling the police, as you would do if you had somebody in your home that you didn't want there and they weren't leaving, the older brother went up and got his gun out of his bedroom and then came down and shot and killed the boyfriend what else are you gonna do now he used self-defense and there's a lot of technicalities as to why his defense he was convicted of i believe manslaughter he got like seven years in prison this was a few years ago so his conviction was overturned on the basis that his defense counsel didn't somehow didn't explain or pursue the self-defense but then i was just thinking to myself as i always do and some people are going to say that i'm asking for trouble but if it was a black guy that killed a white guy what would have happened right would the guy have been arrested only for manslaughter or would he have been arrested for murder if it was a black guy that killed a white guy and would this even be in court right now i was surprised it's very rare to have a conviction overturned yeah. So that's how I mean. I yeah. just was musing on it, and I yes. guess we'll see. Oh, musing and musing. The guy's name I see what, Yeah, I see what you did there. And yeah, the, and we'll then see. the same paper was another guy who's trying to get his conviction overturned. Who's a black guy. I don't think he killed anyone. He just shot at people or shot mm-hmm. people. A Somali American kid. I bet he's not. No, he won't. Him. And aside from race, you know what the common denominator here is: guns. Guns, 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 guns. Cardillo, what was his name? Cardillo or Cardillo. If he didn't have a loaded gun upstairs that he could go up and get. 
It, we wouldn't no even shit. be talking about it. And this you've right said now. this before. And when dad and I were talking about it, watching the news before, dad said it. What's the point of having a gun if you're not going to use it? That's right. Dad was joking when right. he said that. But it's true. When you have a hammer, everything looks like an owl. Yeah. You know what I mean? And on that note, should I say Yes, and I have no, as usual. And, and which, the vagaries. We usually keep it a secret. The vagaries of defense arguments in the main legal system also play a part in tonight's story Ooh, is it, it's a main story it is a main story with greater implications it's a small part of a much bigger story and i'm doing our small part of it uh, oh that's right you told me that so, it will yeah. become clear okay. so anyway sources for the story were the binghamton new york press and some bulletin and the bangor daily news both from when this took place through newspapers.com surprisingly the binghamton paper actually had better information than the bangor daily news did something i'll discuss later even though this took place near bangor interesting but more on that later also the hbo max documentary series last call particularly episode four fred if i have any other sources i'll name them when i use them okay have you watched that series no you may after this i will probably okay oh no because i don't have max i can't afford it sorry you love to rub it in don't you no i just forget because i i do streaming where i alternate between different ones so i do too well anyway why don't we begin all right no one will ever know why fred spencer stopped into richard rogers room in the orono main apartment they shared at around 4 30 p.m on saturday april 28th 1973 the day before my 12th birthday yeah so many of our stories and wait it was right before we moved to maine too it was we didn't move till june but yeah yeah it was mm. but the two men both 22 and graduate students at the university of maine had rooms next to each other in the apartment building at 10 north main ave a short walk from the campus and they were good friends so it wouldn't have been strange for fred to visit richard's room The next time Fred was seen was two days later, on Monday, April 30th. Two boys riding their bikes found his body wrapped in a small green nylon pup tent, shirtless and bloody, in a little clearing in the woods next to Birch Stream off Route 116 in Old Town, about 10 miles north of campus. Fred had been bludgeoned to death with at least eight blows to the back of his head. He also had a broken finger. Any one of the blows to the head could have been fatal, Penobscot County Medical Examiner George Chase said later, but whoever killed him didn't wait to find out. With Fred still alive, the killer put a bag over his head and suffocated him. Orono isn't a big town that has a population of about 10,000, the same today as it was in 1973. For eight or so months out of the year, its population more than doubles when the students for Maine's flagship State University arrive on campus. The town is at the confluence of the Stillwater and Penobscot Rivers, and its downtown is only a few blocks, with the funky cafes and other businesses you usually find in a college town. Memo to those who watched Last Call on HBO Max, or Max, or whatever it's called now. It's a good doc, and I highly recommend it, but they keep showing the ocean with seagulls flying around. (laughs) And while maybe some seagulls do come up the Penobscot River... There is no ocean in Orono. Orono is inland, no. just a little north of Bangor, and probably an hour's drive from the nearest inlet to the ocean. And I took classes at 
that campus. It's yeah, a beautiful you know, campus. I was there the other day and could not find the plaque. Oh, commemorating your time. Oh, work. fuck off. Despite the size of the state university with 12,000 undergraduate and graduate students, small by most state standards, but the biggest one in Maine, Orono has a small town friendly feel. Likely the kids who go to school there from across Maine's rural counties, and very much more so in 1973 when it was smaller, felt more comfortable there than they would have at a bigger university because it's decidedly Maine. There are about 2,500 graduate students at Maine this year, a record. In 1973, there were only about 7,000 undergrads and 1,500 graduate students, and the university was trying to build up its graduate studies programs and looking for smart students like Fred Spencer to come get masters and PhDs there. Most of the students in the three-story white Victorian apartment house with bay windows on either side at 10 North Main Ave were grad students. Some articles describe the building as a duplex, but it's actually a three-story building with, if the electric meters are an indication, 11 apartments. I'm not sure of the layout or how many apartments there were in 1973, but apparently from what I've read, people had their own bedroom or suite, and then there were common living and kitchen areas. The building is a little rambling with some fire escapes and back and side doors. While most articles say Fred and Richard lived at 10 Main Street, newspaper articles also say 10 North Main Street. I believe it was actually 10 North Main Ave, since the other addresses don't exist, and I doubt they existed in 1973 just by the layout of the buildings in the town. I won't go into nitpicky detail, but I just wanted to be sure if you listen to another podcast or something or read something that talks about this and you're like, Maureen got the address wrong. Oh, I'm just okay. saying. Well, and partly too, I, I went up there and I wanted to identify the building they lived in. And, um, yes, and so, I understand. Which, which has you know, some bearing on what happened. William Maserol, a grad student who also lived in the apartment house, said everyone in the house was sociable with one another and got along. Fred Spencer was getting a master's degree in entomology, which is the study of insects. He'd gotten a bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan the year before. He was born in Boston, but when he was nine, his family moved to Norwich, New York, which is in that fast rolling area of small towns between Binghamton and Syracuse, if you're familiar with upstate New yes. York. Fred was the oldest of three children of Claude and Louise Spencer, though judging by most articles written at the time, her first name wasn't Louise, but it was Mrs. Claude Yes, Spencer. of course. It was only in her husband's obituary that I could find her first name. Claude was a chemist, and early in his career was instrumental in helping create the first drug that was effective against malaria, which up until then was killing millions of people a year across the globe. Interestingly, but not relevant at all to the story, he was originally from Painted Post, New York, mm. near our hometown of Elmira. And I've always liked that name, Painted Post. Yes, do you me like too. it? Yeah, yes, I, I do. Fred followed in his father's footsteps. He was an honors student at Norwich Senior High School, where he graduated with honors in 1968. As a junior, he won the American Chemistry Society's National Chemistry Award. The University of Maine had actively recruited Fred to get his master's there. Fred got his undergraduate degree at the University of Michigan, and Fred had been awarded a fellowship for further study in the days before he was killed. Richard Rogers was originally from Plymouth, Mass., the oldest of five children, and was getting a master's in French at the University of Maine after attending the University of Florida. Richard had a brush with the law earlier that year. He was fined $10 for running a stop sign in Orono. Ooh. 
Bill Masroll, their apartment mate, said that Richard Rogers was, quote, a little bit on the effeminate side, unquote. Mm-hmm. He seemed to be wound kind of tight, like an inner stress, Masroll said. Mm-hmm. Don Cubberly also lived in the apartment house before Fred in the room Fred would later live in. Cubberly said Rogers was mild-mannered, quiet, and well-dressed. The guy I knew, he wouldn't hurt that cockroach that was on his suitcase, Cubberly said of Richard Rogers. Mm-hmm. And Cubberly said this in a very poorly done true crime doc, Mark of a Killer. Coverly said Rogers was obsessively neat. His closet was almost like a Marine's closet. It was all lined up with sports coats. All the pants were hanging on hangers. And then the shirts were after that, he said. <laughs> so all his clothes were hanging. Yeah, he hung up. What a <laughs> Instead guy. of being on the floor. Right. Of Fred Spencer and Richard Rogers, Coverly said, they were attached at the hip. Everybody mm. said they were probably gay. Hmm. A college friend of Richard Rogers, that was college in Florida before he came to mm-hmm. Maine, identified on the last call doc as only Linda B, said Rogers was a quiet person. When I see somebody that's a loner, I try to befriend them, she said. She said she kept in touch and saw Richard Rogers at homecoming regularly after they graduated, and the first time she saw him after they graduated from college, she knew right away that he was gay. She said, but he would never admit it. At least he would never tell anybody at school that he was gay. I think it would be very difficult for anybody on campus to come out as gay. People will make fun of you, or possibly worse. She -hmm. said she still thinks of Rogers when homecoming time comes around, and she writes him letters. When Fred's body was found on April 30th, 1973, it didn't have an ID, but police found a key to a post office box at the Orono Post Office that led them to 10 North Main Ave. Police had David Leonard, a professor at the University of Maine, identify Fred's body. That would be kind of weird if, I mean, I know his family wasn't around. And right, I know. If you had to identify Well, I think they students. didn't want any of his buddies to do it because they wanted to figure out who killed him. Police asked all the residents to come down to the state police barracks in Orono for questioning and testing. They all apparently complied. Maserol said the police showed him a picture of Fred's body. They likely did that with all the residents. Police quickly zeroed in on Richard Rogers. It could be because, while they hung around at the police station that day, Rogers told apartment mate Thomas Lipnicki of Bayonne, New Jersey, that when he went into his room that Saturday afternoon, Fred was in it, standing by the bureau. Mm -hmm. Fred, apparently unprovoked, attacked Rogers with a hammer. Rogers wrestled the hammer from Fred and hit him in self-defense. He told Lipnicki he didn't think he'd killed him, only knocked him out. None of that, of course, explains why Rogers then put a plastic bag over Fred's head to suffocate him. Because he didn't think he killed him. Right. He wanted to make sure he... Rogers then told Nikki that he was afraid to call the police because it would look bad. So that's <laughs> yeah. why he wrapped Fred Spencer in an old Boy Scout pup tent and dumped him off a road in Old Town. Mm. At some point that day at the police barracks, Rogers confessed a similar story to the police. Penobscot County District Attorney Richard Cox told reporters that Rogers was arrested around 2 p.m. on Tuesday, May 1st, after he was interrogated and tested. They didn't say what the tests were Hmm. or what they were for. But after the interrogation and testing, Rogers made his confession. Police got a warrant to search the apartment. In the search, police found a hammer they believe was the murder weapon. They also found signs of a violent struggle in both Fred and Richard's rooms, including blood and bloody footprints, though it looked as though someone had attempted to clean it up. Of course, Cox, the DA, had to do the usual copaganda 
Even though an arrest was made the day after the body was found with not a ton of investigation, the Orono, Old Town, Bangor, and University of Maine Police Departments, as well as Maine State Police, had all been involved. This was the best example of cooperation among police departments that I have ever seen. Cox gushed to the Bangor Daily News report. I like your dramatic breathing. Thank you. And I'll say, yeah, someone figured out to check the P.O. box that the key came from. And usually those have, you know, a P.O. box number on them. Yes. Then they tested and interrogated everyone. Again, not sure what the testing was. But after that, Rogers confessed. So it took five police departments to do that. Hmm. Yes, Whatever. It did. Whatever it takes. They also found Rogers' palm print on the pup tent that was used to wrap Fred up. Police believe that Rogers killed Fred around 4.30 p.m. that Saturday afternoon, wrapped him up in the pup tent, then waited until 10 or 11 at night to get him out of the building. Rogers drove Fred's body to the spot where it was found two days later. It would have taken less than 15 minutes for Rogers to get there, either by turning out of their street and going up Route 2 or taking a left and going on 16 past the university until he got to 116. The first descriptions of where the body was found use the word desolate, but that ends up becoming remote in later stories. (laughs) It wasn't really either. It was the north section of Old Town where Birch Stream meets the Penobscot River. The spot is less than a mile off relatively busy Route 16 in a clearing down a little dirt tote road, and the body was found 25 feet down the road. That tote road's used as boat landing, and it's only about 100 yards long itself. Even if Rogers didn't know the area and was just driving looking for somewhere to dump the body, it would have been an easy spot to find. If he was a canoer or kayaker, and he may have been, given he had that tent, he may have been familiar with the place. Across Route 116 is a bigger put-in right off the road for larger boats into the Penobscot River. It's likely the site was muddy, and there still may have even been snow on the grounds. Still, it was also likely a common place to put a canoe or kayak or fishing boat in in 1973, just like it is now, and it wouldn't have taken long for someone to find the body if the two bike riders hadn't happened upon it. On May 3rd, two days after Rogers was arrested, the judge in the 3rd District Court in Bangor entered an innocent plea for him. It's not totally clear, but the story explains that by main law, a judge had to enter the plea. This was in a story by Binghamton Press reporter Jim Wright, who did a much better job covering this case than local Bangor Daily News did. Rogers was held in Penobscot County Jail in Bangor, and the judge continued the case for a probable cause hearing in the coming days. D.A. Cox told a Bangor Daily News reporter that day, two days after Rogers was arrested, that the case was still being investigated, but that they were going to take it to the Penobscot County Grand Jury, which was meeting that week. A few days later, Rogers was indicted on a murder charge to which he pleaded innocent. I guess this was before not guilty pleas became a thing. That summer, legal things became a little tricky in Maine. One of them affected cases going before grand juries in Maine. A legal challenge had been raised about how voter lists were constituted in Penobscot County. Grand juries are drawn from voter lists, as are regular juries. Several towns Mm. and cities in Penobscot County and other places in Maine had separate lists for male and female voters, and they weren't combining the lists when they were presented to the courts for jury selection. A question had been raised, it's hard to find out from who or how far the problem extended in the state, that the lists were unconstitutional. A court could basically pick whether it was going to stick to a gender when summoning jurors. If it was found unconstitutional, it meant that grand jury indictments could be thrown out. So in the summer of 1973, 
After they got the list thing more or less strained out, Penobscot County reconvened the grand jury and Rogers was indicted a second time and pleaded innocent a second time. There was another legal tangle that had a far more chilling effect on justice for Fred Spencer that summer, but I'll talk about that more in a few minutes. In September, D.A. Cox told reporters that Rogers would likely be tried in that year's Superior Court term. This was back when the Superior Court didn't meet year-round, but only for a few months a year. Oh, yeah. And all the cases in the state, just like with Lillian McDonald, yeah. you know, 50 years before that. A couple weeks later, the trial was set for October 29th. In mid-October, Rogers' attorney, Errol Payne, filed motions asking for a speedy trial, discovery, suppression of evidence, and suppression of statements made by Rogers. Likely that included his confessions <laughs> to his apartment mate, Lipnicki, at the police station, and possibly his confession to the police as well, though the Mangor Daily News doesn't specify, and there was no follow-up story. <laughs> In any case, on October 29th, 1973, Six months, almost to the day, after Fred Spencer was killed, Richard W. Rogers Jr. went on trial in Penobscot County Superior Court. As I said earlier, as the case came to trial, there was a tricky legal issue before main courts. To explain it, I have to tell you about another case. Similar to that of Fred Spencer and Richard Rogers, I hope this isn't too confusing, but (laughs) but it will be illuminating. Okay. This case started in the very early hours of Sunday, January 30th, 1966, when Claude Hebert was found beaten to death in a hotel room in the town of Jay, Maine. Claude, 42, of Sherbrooke, Quebec, was the father of three daughters. He was a troubleshooter for S.W. Hooper Machinery Company of Sherbrooke and had been in Jay for two weeks working on the equipment at the new International Paper Company mill in Jay. Fun fact, that mill just shut down for good last year. Mm. It's not clear where Claude had been staying before, but on the Thursday before he was killed, he checked into the Caledonia Motor Inn in the Chisholm section of Jay, which is North Jay. Mm -hmm. Claude was wearing only undershorts and socks when his body was found. Mm. He was lying face up on the bed and there was blood spattered all around the room. At 2.30 a.m. that morning, the Lewiston Telephone Office got a call saying a man had been beaten badly at the Caledonia Motel and needed medical attention. The operator patched the caller, who didn't give his name at first, through to the Livermore Falls Police, but since the motel was in Jay in Franklin County, Livermore Falls is in Androscoggin County, the Livermore Falls Police called the Wilton Police, the nearest Franklin County town to Jay that had a police force. Jay only had a constable. The Wilton police then notified the Maine State Police, which had a barracks in Wilton. It's not clear, even though they didn't know at the time that Claude was dead, if any of those called an ambulance. Alfred Willette, the J-Town constable, was on night duty at the motel, which also had a cocktail lounge, and went to check room 11, where the body had been seen at the request of whichever police uh, let him know about it. There he found Claude's body. He and Livermore Falls Constable Royston Lyman guarded the crime scene until State Police Sergeant Scott Brown out of the Wilton Barracks got there about 15 minutes later. Franklin County Medical Examiner Henry Brinkman was called to the scene by Brown and immediately saw Claude Hebert was dead. He said Claude's face was battered almost beyond recognition. After that, around 3 a.m., State Police Lieutenant Lawrence Figue fetched Donald Thompson, also of Sherbrooke, a co-worker of Claude's, who was also in Jay to fix the mill, 
and was also staying at the Caledonia Motor Inn, to come into Claude's room next door and identify the body. All of the police noticed three soda bottles and a whiskey bottle on, the tab- on a table in the room. Dr. Robert- I know. Hello, what's this? Dr. Robert Wakefield, a Lewiston pathologist, did the autopsy. He said Claude had severe blunt trauma injuries to his head and neck. His eye sockets, jaw, and nose were broken, mm. and he also had lacerations to his face, neck, and chest. Wakefield estimated it took Claude Hebert 15 to 20 minutes to die from his injuries. Mm. He aspirated blood into his lungs, and his brain also swelled. Uh. His blood alcohol level was 0.247, so he'd been drinking. Mm-hmm. Freddie P. Richard, the motel's manager, told a report that Claude was an ideal guest. He was neat, mm. well-dressed, and a real nice guy. He didn't speak English, only French, Richard said. Mm. He added, I never thought we would have anything like this happen in this small town. It's terrible. It only takes one out of a thousand to do something like this. And as an aside, if his wording seems odd, it's possible he was speaking to the reporter in French or had a French-Canadian way of speaking English. It's not nearly so common now, but almost every place I lived in Maine and New Hampshire until maybe a couple decades ago, there were people who regularly spoke French or spoke mm-hmm. with a French-Canadian accent that also had some word usage and phraseology that was unique and a little different. Yes. And that wouldn't be the last time something would happen at the Caledonia. In 1971, a guy stabbed his wife, his estranged mm. wife to death in the parking lot. And I won't get into that because that's a whole different big case. Shortly after that, the Caledonia closed down and it was bought by the AMVETS post. And mm. maybe a man being beaten to death in Jay was something no one, at least Freddie Richard, ever thought would happen. But the population of Jay in 1966 was 4,295 people, which was significantly larger than many of the towns around it. About 30 miles north of Lewiston, it's another Androscoggin River mill town that, paired with Livermore Falls across the river, had an economy driven by mills of one sort or another for two centuries. Until a brutal strike in the late 1980s, the sign at the town line said, Welcome to Jay, Incorporated 1795, a paper-making town. Yeah. So along with the mills, there were bars and fights and domestic violence and the occasional murder. Claude Hebert certainly wasn't the first, no matter what Freddie Richard would like to say. <laughs> I think he was just trying to protect his motel's reputation. It didn't take police long as Dawn arrived on January 30th to arrest a subject. Stillman Wilbur, 21, a mill worker. Wilbur had been drinking with Claude Hebert in the motel's cocktail lounge the night of January 29th and until last call at 1.30 a.m. on January 30th, served by waitresses Hilda Redmond and Shirley Moore. When Douglas Thompson, Claude Hebert's co-worker from Sherbrooke, briefly joined them, Hebert introduced Wilbur as Bill Chabot. Mm. At 2.45 a.m., Wilbur called Lawrence Allen, from whom he rented a room in North Jay about a mile from the motel, and asked for a ride home. Paul Chacoin, another friend, and Allen drove to the motel to pick up Wilbur, who seemed out of sorts, either very drunk or very upset, or both. Alan asked him what was wrong, and Wilbur said he'd walked by a room with an open door at the motel and saw a man lying beaten up on a bed. Hmm. He said he'd called police and ambulance. This was true. Police found blood on the payphone and phone book he'd used, so he had made the, that call to police. And Irene Ferran, the Lewiston night telephone operator, said the man who called about the beating identified himself as Bill Chabot, the same name he had hmm. given Claude Hebert. Paul Chacoin dropped Alan off at home, the landlord, 
and he and Stillman Wilbur went riding around some more. Wilbur wanted to go by the motel, so they <clears> did, and by then there were tons of police cars. Chicoin also couldn't help but notice that Wilbur had blood all over his shirt. <laughs> Wilbur said it had happened in a fight. Finally, Wilbur came out with it. He said that he went back to Claude's room to continue drinking, and Claude had, quote, started playing around, unquote, and, quote, <clears throat> acted like a homosexual, unquote. <clears throat> Wilbur, who newspapers continuously described as husky, was in bed, and I don't know if they mean fat or big or, or yeah, was in bed. He keeps he's constantly described as the husky twenty-one-year-old laborer, <sighs> mill worker, was in bed asleep in his rooming house when police arrived to arrest him that morning on a murder charge. Six hours after Claude's body was found. When questioned by police, Wilbert first told them he'd been at the motel with a girl mm-hmm. and walked by Claude's room and saw his badly beaten body on the bed. He later gave in and said Claude had invited him to his room to continue drinking, and then Claude made advances to him. Mm-hmm. Wilbert told Detective Lawrence Vigu, he made me sick and I beat him, I beat him, I beat him. Mm-hmm. Vigu asked Wilbur what condition Claude was in when Wilbur left the room, and Wilbur put his hands over his face and said, what do you do when you come to and find yourself a murderer? He told Vigu he'd only used his fist, though Dr. Wakefield, the pathologist, said that the beating was by a hard, curved object, likely a bottle. Police already knew Wilbur. He'd been arrested for assault a few times and other crimes, even though he was only 21 at the time. When Franklin County Sheriff Dwight Lander talked to Wilbur, Wilbur said that he wasn't sorry he'd beaten Claude Hebert to death. I bet you never thought you'd have me for a murderer, did you? He asked the sheriff. Wilbur then repeated he wasn't sorry, but added, Give me a gun. I want to shoot myself. Of course, the sheriff did not do that. (laughs) As you likely already guessed, at Wilbur's trial in June 1966, he used what's known as the gay panic defense. Mm -hmm. The way it goes is that a heterosexual man claims that a gay guy made a pass at him, and it so shocked, insulted, and enraged him that he had no choice but to kill the guy before he even knew what he was doing. Memo to women. This defense does not work if you are proposition groped, unconsensually kissed, or even raped by a man. Yes. There's no such thing as the male sexual assault defense. But for many years, and sometimes still, the gay panic defense works a charm for fellows. Dr. Robert Wakefield, who testified for the state at the trial, was asked by the defense over objections by prosecutor Hubert Ryan these questions. Would a man be more likely to express homosexual desires under the influence of alcohol? Could a man married and with a family have latent homosexual tendencies? And would would such a man, when separated from his family, be more likely to satisfy his (laughs) homosexual desires? Wakefield answered yes, but stressed that he was not an expert in such matters. <laughs> oh, I don't know anything about the homosexual. <laughs> Claude Hebert's widow, Therese, also testified, though the reporters who mentioned that in their stories didn't bother to say what she'd said. In his summation, County Attorney Hubert Ryan said that the evidence, Wilbur's statements, and his actions after the crime showed malice, which was necessary to find somebody guilty of murder in Maine. There weren't different degrees at the time. It was just murder, but you had to show malice, meaning you intended to harm the person for it to be murder. And just put a pin in that because that plays a part later. Ryan said that the only evidence there was that Claude Hebert had made any advances was Wilbur's testimony. 
But Wilbur mm. had also shown himself to not be credible by his actions and statements after he killed Claude. Ryan said, the case adds up to a clear and vigorous picture of a strong young construction worker administering a beating to a man that caused his death. This vicious beating furnishes the malice to support the murder charge. Ryan said that Wilbur had told police different stories about what happened and his defense was grasping at straws. <clears throat> but defense attorney Calvin Sewell said the events of the night fit manslaughter or justifiable homicide better than murder. He said that Wilbur was assaulted and acted in retaliation. Quote, imagine the effect that such an aggravating and revolting assault would make on a young boy so that he would go into a state of panic and with passion strike out and keep striking out to protect himself from the assault made on him. Judge Randolph Weatherby told the Franklin County jury of seven men and five women that they could find Stillman Wilbur innocent, guilty of manslaughter, or guilty of murder. To the jury's credit, they found him guilty of murder, and Wilbur was sentenced to a mandatory life in prison. But that wasn't the end of the story. The jury brought in their verdict on a Friday. The following Tuesday, the defense asked for a new trial. Judge Weatherby refused and imposed the mandatory life sentence, but before Wilbur could be taken to the state prison in Thomaston, the defense appealed to the state Supreme Court and Wilbur stayed in the Franklin County Jail. Hmm. The defense maintained that the judge gave improper orders and told the jury it was up to Wilbur's defense to prove there was no premeditation. As simple as this sounds, it was actually a more subtle issue. The defense was arguing sudden provocation, which was a legal term that is still used but not as often, which means that a circumstance so enraged the killer that he was powerless to do anything but kill his victim. <laughs> While this defense was often used for a number of different things, it had its greatest success with killers who argued that a gay man had made a pass at them, and so they had to kill the guy. Its second biggest use that I could find in my quick research is use of men who supposedly found their wife having sex with mm -hmm. another man. That's what I was going to guess. I'm not a lawyer, but the premise seems to be that men whose manhood is questioned or threatened should get a pass. Probably mm -hmm. white men, though, my research didn't extend. That <laughs> Remember last episode when we got annoyed because the Bangor Daily News during the Amber Cummings case asked readers to weigh in on whether mm -hmm. the domestic abuse defense was used too often? We were very disdainful that a defense could be used too often. But one defense I can't get behind is the extreme or sudden provocation defense, which seemed to be used solely by guys who beat gay guys to death. I just snapped. I know. In any case, the Maine State Supreme Court in 1966 denied Stillman Wilbur's appeal. But his lawyers kept up the fight. And in October 1972, five months before Richard Rogers killed Fred Spencer, federal judge Edward Gigno ordered a new trial for Wilbur Stillman. Mm -hmm. So just in case that's a little confusing, this is a few months before Richard Rogers killed Spencer. Wilbur's getting a new trial. Okay. Gigno ruled that Stillman Wilbur's constitutional rights were violated because the burden of proof is on the state, not the defense. In other words, the state had to prove it wasn't sudden provocation and Judge Weatherby shouldn't have told the jury that the defense had to convince them that it was. In February 1973, two months before Richard Rogers killed Fred Spencer, a U.S. appeals court agreed with Gignow and dismissed the charges against Stillman Wilbur. The three-judge panel was unanimous in their decision. 
the issue for other cases in Maine was that the instructions Judge Weatherby had given the jury back in June 1966, saying the defense had to prove sudden provocation, were the traditional ones that judge give to Maine juries in sudden provocation cases. This prompted the Wilbur case, with charges still dismissed, to move all the way up eventually to the U.S. Supreme Court and had a chilling effect on Maine murder cases when this was going through the courts because judges didn't want to have to retry cases because the standard jury instruction they were giving could now be deemed unconstitutional. This process going to the Supreme Court was just beginning in the summer 1973 as Richard Rogers readied to stand trial that October. So the courts in Maine were very, very sensitive about how they were going to deal with murder cases and in particular sudden provocation cases of which you may have guessed the Richard Roger case was one. Because here was Richard Rogers suddenly asserting something he apparently hadn't initially asserted to the police that Fred Spencer had made a pass at him. Richard Rogers was going to use the gay panic defense and that was a defense the main courts were having a legal panic about. Hmm. And they weren't panicking that it was a bad defense, but that the rights of the men who used it weren't being held up in court. There's no evidence that Fred Spencer was gay. There's no evidence either that he ever made a pass at Richard Rogers, or if he did, that Rogers rejected it. The newspaper coverage of Rogers' trial in October 1973 is so uninformative that the only reason I even know he used the gay panic defense is from the documentary series Last Call and the episode of the really bad true crime doc, <clears throat> Mark of a Killer. To read the Bangor Daily News articles about the trial, you'd think that it was a self-defense defense and not sudden provocation. That hmm. Spencer had inexplicably attacked Rogers with a hammer and Rogers had wrestled the hammer from him and killed him to protect himself. I'm not sure if this was because the newspapers weren't comfortable with talking about the gay stuff. They certainly hadn't been seven years before with Stillman Wilbur's trial, or more likely if it was because a guy from out of state had killed a guy from out of state and there was limited interest, nobody was going to cover the trial. And then all of a sudden it became a thing, but before they knew it, the trial was over and they'd barely been there. Mm -hmm. Fred Spencer's family didn't make the drive from New York for the trial. Fred's high no. school girlfriend, Jenny Riley, said in the last call, Doc, I'm sure they couldn't have listened to the claim that it was self-defense. It was something none of us could believe. She said Fred was a very gentle man, but she said gentle didn't mean weak. He was a strong man, but gentle and kind. Roger's trial began on October 31st at Penobscot County Superior Court in Bangor. It lasted less than two days. Wow. The state took one day to present its case. At the conclusion of the state's case on Thursday, the defense made a motion that the state hadn't proved its case and the murder charge should be dismissed. This is often just a formality in a murder case. And usually the judge, if you go cover a case for a newspaper or watching one on TV, almost all the time after yeah. the state presents its case the defense will move yeah the state move to dismiss, right yeah. and the judge usually says motion denied but defense attorney errol Payne, in his motion said rogers acted in passion under sudden provocation i had to read this by the way in the article by jim wright in the binghamton press in some bulletin the bangor daily news story was extremely lacking in information and didn't have that my question is was that the original defense or was it changed in the middle of the trial, which I didn't think you could do. But in any case, Judge David Roberts did dismiss the murder charge, but he wasn't about to dismiss the case. 
He said the state hadn't proved murder, but that Rogers did act with sudden provocation and his actions hadn't exceeded manslaughter, so the jury would be deciding on a manslaughter charge, not a murder charge. Roberts, the judge, said that the state would have to prove malice to make it murder, and the sudden provocation obviated the malice. So that's why there was no murder charge. While the really lackluster newspaper coverage didn't acknowledge the Stillman-Wilbur case, and my guess is that the New York, the reporter from Bingham to New York wouldn't have been known about it anyways, it was upending how cases like Richard Rogers were being heard in main courts that summer as it made its way to the Supreme Court. And I'm sure that was on the judge's mind. He didn't want to have to keep dealing with the Richard Rogers case for years and years to come. He just wanted it done with. The fact that all this happened before the defense put on its case gave Rogers a tremendous advantage, particularly since the defense now didn't have to prove anything and the state obviously hadn't proved anything either, except that Rogers had killed Fred Spencer. On Friday morning into the second day of the trial, Several defense witnesses testified to Roger's good character, though Bangor Daily News reporter Lawrence Rosenblatt doesn't say who they were or what they said. Mm. He just said several witnesses testified <laughs> to his good character. He does say that Assistant Attorney General Fuad Salim said that Fred Spencer, the victim, was about to receive an academic fellowship at the time of death. This is a total non sequitur in the article, but I believe it was actually part of the state's case the day before. And not something that just popped up during the defense case, but the, as I said, the reporting is bad. Rogers was the final defense witness to testify. He told the jury that when he entered his room that afternoon, Fred Spencer was standing next to his dresser and immediately came after him with a hammer. Mm. Rogers wrestled the hammer away and hit Fred eight times in the head with it. Mm. Fred was still struggling, so Rogers took a plastic bag and put it over his head. I would argue that at that point, even if it was <laughs> self-defense, Fred Spencer was in no position to be a threat. When you put a plastic bag over someone's head when they're incapacitated, that's when you're planning to kill them. Yes. You switch from acting right um, impulsively to making a decision. Yes, you do. I'm and a judge a, now. Earlier, the medical examiner had testified about the massive head wounds that Fred received. Like Claude Hebert, seven years before, the head injuries easily would have killed Fred. The bag over his head, as we just said, just made it a little quicker. Back to Roger's testimony. As reported by Lauren Rosenblatt and Jim Wright, and I, no telling if either of them was really there or where they got this information from. They both have the exact same quotes and stuff. <laughs> Rogers, on cross-examination, told Assistant Attorney General Fahad Salim that he hadn't intended to kill Spencer, and he straightened out his room in a daze, including removing his mm -hmm. bloodstained rug and throwing it away in a dumpster at another location. And I just didn't know what to do. I very much wanted to go to the police, but by then I felt it would look very suspicious, he said. <laughs> Court reporter Don Thompson told the last call doc, this kid was very good at testifying. He wasn't up there ranting and raving. He couldn't have gotten somebody out of typecasting in Hollywood and done a better job than that kid did. Prosecutor Salim did question Rogers in cross-examination about the blows being to the back of Fred's head and about the plastic bag over his head, Jim Wright of the Binghamton newspaper reported, but he did not report what Rogers' response to those questions was. In his instructions to the jury, Judge Roberts said that if they were going to find Rogers guilty of manslaughter, they had to determine he was not acting in self-defense 
or that he could not have even assumed he was acting in self-defense, even if Fred wasn't a threat to him. So in other words, to find him guilty, any self-defense or Rogers thinking he needed to defend himself had to be out the window. The jury of six Hmm. men and six women deliberated three hours beginning at 1130 Friday morning. So the trial had lasted less than a day and a half before coming back with an acquittal. The newspaper stories are irritating. Where's all the gay panic, sudden provocation stuff, aside from that one remark by the defense during his motion to dismiss? Again, the articles about the trial are sparse, and I know I keep going on and on about it, but there's so little information, it almost seems as though the reporters weren't even in court. And the reason I'm saying that is because in the last call, Doc, they go on and on about the gay panic being the issue in this trial. If it was... (laughs) I don't, I'm, but yeah, I'll, my, I'll talk yeah, a little bit, paper. Yeah. I'll talk a little more about that later, but um, at least Bangor Daily News, Lawrence Rosenblatt was there at the very end. He wrote that Rogers gasped and smiled as the verdict was read. Rogers seemed to be at a loss for words, Rosenblatt wrote, as he turned to his attorney, Errol K. Payne, and said, I just can't thank you enough several times. So I guess he wasn't at a loss for words, really. (laughs) As a juror walked out, Rogers called after him, thank you very much. I assure you, you did the right thing. Jim Wright, the Binghamton reporter, wrote that court officials, quote unquote, told him that the verdict wasn't much of a surprise. It was Rogers' testimony against that of a dead man. Afterwards, Rogers told Lawrence Rosenblatt, the Bangor Daily News reporter, I just had no idea how it was going to turn out. I mean, I'm not guilty. But I am really thankful. (laughs) Years later, a letter appeared in the Bangor Daily News with the headline, Spencer Remembered. It was from David Leonard, the University of Maine professor who'd had to identify Fred's body in 1973. It tells you a little more about the trial and how it went than any newspaper article about it does. I'll read part of it. Fred was my graduate student recruited from the University of Michigan based on his outstanding academic record and future promise as a research scientist. I had the unpleasant task of identifying Fred's body with his face so battered by his confessed slayer, Richard W. Rogers Jr., that recognizing him was both nauseous and difficult. And mm-hmm. I think he means nausea 18. But anyway, he's yes. a chemist, not a English major. It is my hope that someone with a serious interest in the criminal justice system reviews this case. It is an example of the criminal justice system best serving the criminal rather than the victim, in my estimation. The trial proceedings of the case would be a fast read since the trial lasted only several hours. Called as a character witness for Mr. Spencer, I was asked several inane questions that did not allow any discourse about his character, and then I was dismissed. This should have been an omen to me that the case would be prosecuted at warp speed with a decided lack of vigor and commitment. Indicative of such as well was prosecution's willingness to accept a plea bargain of manslaughter for the grisly murder. You know, he got that wrong. They didn't accept a plea bargain. The judge threw out the murder charge. The prosecution didn't have a choice. After viewing slides of Fred's body at the trial, I left the courtroom to get fresh air. I returned an hour or so later to find the courtroom empty. During my absence, the trial ended. Presumably, in this short period of time, the prosecution finished its case. The defense did likewise. There were summations by the prosecution and defense. The judge provided instructions to the jury. The jury deliberated, and the court readjourned to hear the jury's verdict of acquittal of Rogers. Fred's parents had asked me to keep them informed of the trial. What satisfactory explanation could I relate? Rogers was pleased with the result. 
His comment to one juror, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. I assure you, you did the right thing, was chilling. The acquittal of Rogers left a stigma with Fred's memory as if he was the one responsible for events that led to his horrific death by bludgeoning or suffocation. One additional disappointment for me in this sad episode was lack of response by the administration of UMO, which some people call the University of Maine, to a request from Fred Spencer's parents to have a fund to accept donations in Fred's memory. They were and had every justification to be proud of his character, academic accomplishments, and acceptance for graduate work at UMO. Yes, Professor Leonard is right about it taking warp speed, although I think his memory, because this letter was written in 2001, telescope the events he relayed didn't all happen in just a few hours. But Lawrence Rosenblatt, as I said, was there for the verdict, and you'll be happy to know that even though he didn't report many details of the trial, he does report that the jury, which had been sequestered for the two days of the trial, told the judge that they were happy with the accommodations and the meals. Where did they stay? Uh, it doesn't say. Rosenblatt also reported that Rogers had to go back to the adjacent jail to get his clothes after he was acquitted. When he did, several inmates emotionally congratulated oh, Rogers, geez. Rosenblatt wrote. A court officer who'd offered to drive Rogers to his car asked, are you ready? One of the inmates said, according to Rosenblatt, he's been ready for six months. <laughs> Rogers told Rosenblatt he was going to call his parents who weren't at the trial. And gosh, it's only your son on trial for murder. And he was going to tell him he was acquitted. And then he was going to go home as soon as possible. He told Rosenblatt, there are a lot of things I won't take for granted anymore. Mm -hmm. A detective in New Jersey, Mike Mole, said many years later, a lot of people didn't believe it was self-defense. And I didn't believe it either when he later found out about this mm -hmm. crime. Because he was hit eight times with a hammer in the back yeah. of the head. It's like, duh. Mm -hmm. Maserol, the guy who lived in the apartment building with Fred Spencer and Richard Rogers, said on the last call documentary, I don't know why or what the true circumstances were, but what Rogers did, he was apparently very violent. Mm -hmm. After the trial ended, no one brought up Fred Spencer or Richard Rogers much in Orono. Maserol said life went on. Frankly, after going through the experience myself, I was happy to be done with it. I went on with school and I didn't know what had transpired with the trial until years later, until the detective from New Jersey phoned me. And why, you may wonder, mm. was a detective from New Jersey phoning Maserol years later? Why, indeed. Well, apparently Richard Rogers learned one thing from his experience in Maine, and that was that he could get away with murder. Oh. Police in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania have been stymied by a series of murders in which the male victims have been dismembered and left in garbage bags along highways. Oh. Of course, there was a lot of cop idiocy and other things, and you'll have to watch the last call doc on Max to get the full story, because that's a long, long involved story, and as I said, we're just telling our little piece of it here. The case also took a while to gain traction because the victims were all gay. While police weren't paying a ton of attention, the New York City gay community and press were on alert for what was being called the last call murders because the killer apparently mm. picked up the men in gay bars at last call. In any case, police had fingerprints from the garbage bags that had two of the men's remains. Thomas Mulcahy, whose remains were found at a rest stop in New Jersey in 1992, and Anthony Marrero, whose remains were found by a New Jersey highway in 1993. But back then, the cops had no good way to retrieve the prints from the flimsy plastic of the garbage bags. I won't go into all the scientific details, 
But by the late 1990s, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police did have a way, Mm -hmm. and the New Jersey cops asked them to retrieve the prints for the police, and they did. This is another case where a murderer who probably would have gotten away with murder for the rest of his life was tripped up by advances in technology, only this time it wasn't just DNA. There was another technological advance in the late 1990s, computerized information sharing among law enforcement. Mm. The automated fingerprint identification system was just going online at the end of the 1990s. A lot of states still didn't even use it. In 2000, Maine did. The New Jersey cops got the fingerprint IDs from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. They loaded them in the system. In Maine, Kim James, a technician at the Maine Crime Lab, checked the prints against the ones Maine had in its system. Bingo! Richard Rogers' prints were in the system. The ones they took when they arrested him in 1973, the prints had been marked expunged, but for some reason, they were still in the system. Annoyingly, the bad mark of a killer doc shows a male crime tech doing this in their reenactment. Last call, though, interviews Kim James, who actually is the tech who did it and still works there. She's a woman. Rogers, who lived by then on Staten Island and was a nurse at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York, a male nurse, a male nurse I know. I just was arrested that. in May 2001. In his Staten Island home, police found Versed, a medication commonly used as a date rape drug, mm-hmm. and, it pretty much, and it pretty much paralyzes you without paralyzing your brain. Ugh. They also found carpet fibers consistent with those found on some of the bodies and garbage bags similar to the ones the remains were put in. They also found highlighted passages about decapitation and dismemberment in his Bible. That Bible, it's such a crazy, crazy book. A New Jersey roadmap and Polaroid pictures of shirtless men like workmen at construction sites that had had stab wounds drawn on them in red pen. Ah. And they, also, they also found a lot of like videos and stuff that they make the cops make a big deal about and one thing that's funny on the last call documentary is he had every episode of the golden girls on a separate <laughs> tape and the cop is like who has who watches the like a grown man's gonna watch the golden <laughs> girls everything and i have to say i had a relationship with a guy and that was one of his favorite shows and he was mm. in his 30s at the time so i'm just saying but anyway, yes. Richard Rogers was convicted in November 2005 on Mulcahy and Marrero's murders and sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. It took the jury only 50 minutes more to come to a verdict, three mm-hmm. hours and 50 minutes, than it did for the Penobscot County jury to acquit him in 1973. Three hours. This mm-hmm. time, Rogers did not testify in his own defense. One of the New Jersey prosecutors said when they first found out Rogers had been acquitted in Maine, they looked more into what had happened. She said, we found Rogers put on the gay panic defense. It was my male roommate who hit on me. I did what I had to do and that he was justified in doing it. While the last call doc makes much of how the gay panic defense was used in Rogers 1973 trial. Again, I can't find anything that says that except for that one phrase his attorney used the sudden provocation phrase i would love to see the court transcripts and know what really happened and i'm bothered that the news coverage was so shoddy i'm sure the prosecutors had access to documents that i don't but even the documentary only shows microfilm of the same articles i used from newspapers.com i'm not saying i doubt that the gay panic defense was used don't get me wrong on that and i'm sure it influenced the jury but i also think the precarious position 
that kind of defense was in a main that summer was very much on the judge's mind and his instructions to the jury that they could only find him guilty of manslaughter if they believed he didn't act in self-defense or didn't believe that he acted in self-defense put them in a bind that the last call documentary doesn't mention at all. Mm-hmm. They just make it sound like it was blatant gay panic, gay panic, gay panic. And maybe it was. And then, of course, it was coupled with the fact that both guys were from out of state and the prosecutor was Middle Eastern. Given all that, there was likely a lack of giving a shit among everyone involved. I'm definitely not excusing that. I'm just pointing it out. And I can see why in the documentary they want to make a big deal about the gay panic thing. And I agree that was an element, but I don't think it was the only thing. And it was more complicated than that. And of course, it's kind of a catch-22. Because they wouldn't have been in that legal tangle if the gay panic defense wasn't a thing. I think the original main instructions, the ones found unconstitutional, were a way to put defendants using that defense feet to the fire. But again, the Constitution of the United States makes it clear it's up to the state to prove a case. It's not up to the defense to prove anything. The defense doesn't have to prove their case. I guess it didn't occur to prosecutors to do some kind of strategy that would nullify the defense, but maybe that's why Claude Hebert's wife came to town from Quebec to testify and why Stillman Wilbur was found guilty. I don't know. In that case, the defense didn't work, but the legal issues were too rigid because of how ass-backward it had been handled in Maine law. So Stillman Wilbur, by the way, the guy who killed Claude Hebert and was found guilty, despite the gay panic defense, also more or less ended up getting away with murder. His case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which in 1975 overturned his conviction for the same reasons the earlier courts did. The judge's instructions that it was up to the defense to prove there was extreme provocation were unconstitutional. Wilbur pleaded guilty in June 1975 to manslaughter in Franklin County Superior Court, was credited with time served for the eight years he'd spent in prison. He'd actually been released in June of 1974 as the case went through the courts and was working at a Portland variety store awaiting the Supreme Court decision, according Mm. to the Press Herald. Wilbur died in June of 2001. He was living in Buxton, Maine, and his obituary made no mention of his role in solidifying the sudden provocation defense Mm. for Maine's killers, because certainly that Supreme Court ruling that struck down Maine's judge instructions made it easier for people to use that defense yeah it wasn't until 2019 that the main legislature after years of trying finally passed a law that said the fact someone made a same-sex pass at someone can't be used in a sudden provocation defense and it specifically mentions gay panic and you cannot use gay panic as a defense and that was only four years ago i don't think that defense is used that much anyway at least not maine but The last call doc has a whole list of people whose charges were reduced or who were acquitted because of it. Richard Rogers' known victims, besides Fred Spencer, are Peter Anderson, 54, who was last seen alive on the night of May 5, 1991, on Lexington Avenue in New York City. He'd been drinking at the Townhouse Bar, which was a popular hangout for gay men. His remains were found the next morning in a garbage barrel on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Anderson Ah. died from multiple stab wounds to the chest and back. Thomas Mulcahy, 58, was killed in July 1992, while the married father of four from Massachusetts was on a business trip to New York. He, too, had been drinking at the townhouse bar on July 8th of that year. Most of his remains were found in five trash bags on Route 72 in Woodland Township, New Jersey. 
His legs were found in a six bag at a picnic area of, on the Garden State Parkway in Stafford Township, New Jersey. He was also killed by multiple stab wounds to the chest. Ugh. Anthony Marrero, 44, was a sex worker in Manhattan. On May 10, 1993, his remains were found in garbage cans off Crow Hill Road in Manchester Township, New Jersey. His cause of death was multiple stab wounds to the back and torso. Michael J. Sakara, 56, was last seen alive on July 30, 1993, at the Five Oaks Bar in Greenwich Village. He was last seen drinking with a man who said he was a nurse at St. Vincent's Hospital in New York. Sakara's remains were found at Havastraw Bay, overlooking the Hudson River, north of New York City, and in Stony Point on Long Island. <sighs> He'd been stabbed several times, but the medical examiner ruled his death was caused by bludgeoning. Rogers is also suspected of killing Matthew Piero, 21, who was found dead off Interstate 4 in Lake Mary, Florida, on April 10, 1982. He was strangled and stabbed to death. Piero was last seen leaving a gay bar in Orlando. Richard Rogers was in the area at the time for a college reunion. Hmm. Jack Andrews, 26, whose remains were found November 24, 1986, along Route 8 in Litchfield, Connecticut. Andrews was a transient who often hitchhiked, and he was last seen at a rest area off Interstate uh -huh. 95 in Fairfield, Connecticut. There are also, if you watch Last Call documentary, several men who were attacked by Rogers and managed to escape. It's pretty harrowing and a good doc. I highly recommend it. Investigators believe it's possible Rogers killed during frequent travels to California, Florida, Massachusetts, West Virginia, New Jersey, and Arkansas. While the media was quick to use the pop psychology as far as motives go, like he was a self-hating gay man, so he mm -hmm. had to torture and kill gay men, yeah. people in that community, as well as others who knew him, called bullshit on that. Duncan Osborne, a reporter for the Gay City News, said on the Last Call documentary, that's just another way of ignoring the people he murdered. A nurse, yeah. a woman who worked with Rogers at Mount Sinai Hospital said, power, that's what they call it, power. You have the power to take care of them, and at the same time, you kill somebody. It's all about power. Mm. B. Hansen, an activist with the New York City Gay and Lesbian Anti-Violence Project, said the gay thing, quote, is a distraction because it doesn't hold systems accountable for what they need to be accountable for. And Matt Foreman, a longtime advocate also with the New York City Anti-Violence Project, said, I don't think it matters to the story that Richard Rogers is gay, other than that being gay helped explain how he was able to get his victims to go with him and meet their end. None of these men would have been murdered and dismembered if the justice system had worked in 1973. And Peggy Riley, Fred Spencer's high school girlfriend, said, When death is unexpected, you have no chance to do your grieving ahead of time, and when it's violent, you just can't wrap your head around it. Mm -hmm. Fred's murder is the darkest moment of my life. And it's more than deeply distressing to think that had his killer been convicted in 1973, so many other men might not have suffered the same fate. And that is my story. Thank you. And when I was watching Last Call and they had that whole thing about Fred, I was like, ooh, I should do an episode. I think I even texted you. And then I'm like, oh, I'll be able to find all sorts of stuff. And I know I've already gone on about it ad nauseum, but the lack of information in those newspaper stories or the even erroneous or tangled mm. information. And I was on the internet researching su the sudden provocation defense in Maine because I thought, okay, maybe it'll come up. And that's when I came across Stillman Wilbur and that going to the Supreme oh, Court. Interesting. And I felt like since that was 
being found unconstitutional at the same time this case happened, I felt like it was relevant, like it had to have some effect on how that judge, yeah. how the judge I'm handled sure the did. case. And too bad the reporters weren't more on top of things. And, you know, I think it might have been, who knows, but well, I do it, think two out of state guys just that's part of it, but also the whole gay angle. But I don't even know. I don't even know if they knew there was a gay angle until they were at the trial because it was presented in the stories as he claims he was attacked and it was self-defense. The gay angle certainly didn't stop the very graphic coverage of the Stillman Wilbur thing in 1966. So it's a sad story because it sounds like Fred was a good guy and had a big future ahead of him. What I'm wondering is if Fred was the first person he killed, probably. And if he, obviously, I don't believe his story at all. I think it's a bunch of crap. So I think he might have just decided he wanted to kill somebody and see what it was like. Yeah. And then he hadn't planned it it out very well or he thought he wouldn't get caught. Right. And he perfected it later. A lot of people, Um, a lot of people who commit murder don't think especially part of being a psychopath which i believe he is Mm -hmm. um and i'm not just pulling that on my ass the last call doc makes it pretty clear but is you don't think of consequences or long-term things and then they kind of learn if they're serial killers to think that way because oh shit i got in trouble for that one yeah it's not oh Oh, that was a bad thing to do. It's, right. Oh, I got caught. But no. they're also but they're also narcissistic and believe people are going to believe him, and people yeah. do believe him. I read this recently somewhere that with people who are psychopath, it's not necessarily that they believe their lies; it's that they just believe everybody else is going to believe their lies. Yes, we and talked lot, about this in one of our yes. recent notes. Yes, and lots of times they do. But I do recommend people. If they can to watch that documentary Last Call on Max, it's very good. It's very well done. I'd probably give it a 9.5 or something if I did an NNW. It goes into the victims and also just what the gay community was like in the 90s in New York and the things they faced. And And that's the thing that people who are younger don't understand. Like, for instance, the gay panic, that's something people would kind of accept. Right. If you said, oh, yeah, that guy was coming on to me, so I stabbed him or whatever. I mean, there were some people that would be like, oh, that's an overreaction. Right. But there were a lot of people back then. They're like, oh, OK. This almost makes light of it. But when I was a reporter in Manchester, New Hampshire, and this would have been the late 80s, the first body I ever saw, there was a floater, as we call them. Sorry, I know that's insensitive. In the Merrimack River. And we went down. They fished him out but then they arrested a guy and in my mind it's conflated to this that same being down at the river but i think it was later they arrested him but i was also at that or maybe the the guy who killed him came down to watch them get him out i can't remember but anyway as the police were taking the guy away handcuffed the tv reporter because they always have to yell things out yes. so they can and they yelled why did you do it and the guy in handcuffs goes he grabbed my ass <laughs> We all laughed, which I know is bad. Know. But even then, I'm like, no, you don't, you don't kill somebody. Well, I remember in high school there was a classmate of mine. He was about a year older that used to hitchhike to school because he lived in South China. Yes, you better beep him. I won't put.
put his name in. And he used to carry a hunting knife. Okay. The kids did back then. They they would tell you not to have, you weren't allowed to have them, but they didn't get taken away very no. often. And he's like, I have to have it in case some F word put some moves on me. And he he would get very like worked up about it. And we used to think it was funny that he got so worked up about right. it. But yeah. at the same time, we didn't think, wow, that's really fucked up that he's so homophobic because right. it was 1980. I know. You know? I know. I mean, I'm not excusing Poor it. Poor men. Just, they're just so complicated. and. But it know. used to always crack me up because people would always say, I don't care as long as they stay away from me. It's like, oh, because you're so freaking irresistible. Even back in high school, guys would say things like that. And girls would also say things like that about gay girls, but not as much. Not nearly as much. And also, um, you know, when you think of what females have to go through, in general, the microaggressions yeah. and the sexual assaults and everything j- just daily through their lives and how that's not considered the fact that, you know, men get were getting this pass on killing if a gay guy made a pass at him, but women certainly yeah. weren't. But I just want to clarify, because I don't know if my explanation was too tangled. The issue with Maine's instructions were that the defense had to prove there was yeah. some provocation. Yeah, and that is an issue because yeah, it's not it's the un- way it it's supposed to work. But I think it was there because it's the killer's word against somebody yeah. that they killed. That yeah. that happened if there were no witnesses to it. How does the prosecution counter that? You know, they would have to really dig into past behavior or I think that with Stillman Wilbur, they already had assaulted a couple people at the age of 21. I don't know if that came up in the trial or not, but it wouldn't have helped this case. Poor Claude Hebert. I know. Guy down from Sherbrooke to work at the mill and who knows what happened. And they were wicked drunk and he may have just said or done something that pissed Wilbur off. Maybe there was a language barrier. Well, the other thing is one one or both of them could have been gay. Yeah. You know, or maybe Stillman Wilbur made a pass at Claude Heber. Well, you, but also back then then, you had to hide it. You had to hide it. So if you were hooking up with a guy and you were afraid someone saw you or something, who knows? Who knows? But anyway, do you have an NNW? I do. All right. It's not crime related at all. It doesn't have all. to be. And so it's quite a change of pace. All right. Uh, a few weeks ago, Jewel and I went to the movies and we went to see Barbie. Oh. It was when it first started playing and I didn't really know that much about it, but she wanted to go see it and she's 12. And I had just read a review of it. So it sounded like I would enjoy it. So we went and I want to say before I start this review is I think most people now know that the actual movie and it is i think it is pg-13 i think people understand now that it's not just one of those like they like to make movies based on video games and movies right. with toys it's Crop not really placement movies. and that's that is not what it is i'll kind of go through the negative knowledge but a lot of things don't apply and then i'll talk about it after that okay bad reenactments no because it's a fictional movie so there's nothing to reenact um narrative cliches i'm taking a point away The premise of the movie is Barbie comes to life and she travels to, she lives in Barbie land, which is mostly women. And there's a couple Kens, there's a few Kens around. And she goes to the real world. She visits Mattel. And the other thing is, 
I'm amazed that Mattel okayed this movie. Yeah. Because the cliche is the executives, and actually it might not be that much of a cliche because it's probably true to life, but the executives are a group of men, middle-aged men, who are totally clueless. Mm. So maybe that's not, but it's kind of a cliche in these movies. There's always these people at the top that are kind of clueless. And, and that's kind of like... A cliche, but it's also the movie is kind of a take a parody on certain movies. So maybe it's, I don't know, but I'm still taking a point off of that. Um, racial gender obtuseness, no. There are all kinds of Barbies in Barbie land. The star is Margot Robbie plays, and she she's, she's stereotypical Barbie. So she's the blonde Barbie that we all grew to know. But there are many other Barbies, like Issa Rae is in it. She's the president oh, Barbie. Like and <laughs> Kate, Kate McKinnon, is that her name? The one from Saturday Night Live? I don't know. I don't watch that show. She's weird. <laughs> she's weird Barbie who has kind of ostracized but it's because she was played with too hard. So she has pen all over her <laughs> face and stuff. So there's no obtuseness. It's kind of the opposite of which I'll talk about later. Lack of good visuals. No, the sets are pretty cool. Barbie land looks like you would expect a Barbie land to look. It's very pink and plasticky looking and fake looking. And then when she does go into the railroad, I think she ends up in Santa Monica or some Southern California, Venice Beach, Santa Monica. I don't know. I'm sorry, California people. I don't, they all look alike to me. Missing pieces, no, because it's just a story. So there isn't really anything. And accuracy and acronisms, no. Storytelling, I'm taking off half a point. But I'm trying to remember. Because it's mean to men. No. I don't care about I'm that. Joking. I'll talk about that later, though. Oh, I know what it was because there are some musical numbers in it, and I think some of them went on a little too long, and I mm. was getting bored. Freshness, I'm not taking any points off, despite what I thought it was. It was not, and it was actually refreshing to see a movie that is unapologetically feminist mm. and my daughter and I enjoyed it very much. Uh, repetition, now. Not really. Beating the drum. Some would say it is beating the feminist drum. I would say not. I think it's very subtle. I want to say that I loved playing with my Barbies when I was probably eight years old to about 12 years old. I, I had lots of Barbie, usually hand-me-down ones. I didn't have any new ones. Lot, some of them were weird Barbie, became weird Barbies. At the beginning of the movie, there's a little kind of a prologue, which the little girl next to me, it disturbed her. There are these little girls playing with baby dolls. And it kind of just tells us, the viewer, that that's what dolls were. They were baby dolls. They were teaching women how to be mothers and how to keep a house and blah, blah, blah. And then Barbie showed up and taught little girls that they could model other things besides being a mother. They could play with this grown-up doll. You know, it says it more storytelling than that. But it's true. That's the one thing I always thought was good about Barbie. Yes, she was kind of an idealistic look at beauty but when girls are playing with her they're not pretending to be mothers usually they're pretending to be whatever they want to be as an adult helps them think about what they could be beside and not that there's anything wrong with being a mother and keeping a house and stuff but there are other choices especially when we were kids 
and younger than us. Barbie started in late 50s. You know, when we were kids, it was starting to get more like women could be an engineer, women could be an astronaut, but it was still rare and it still is. So, but the reason that the little girl got upset is there's something happens. I can't remember. Something happens and falls from the sky and all the baby dolls are getting crushed and it, it upset the girl. Or the little girl started taking their baby dolls and smashing them on the ground. That's what mm, That's kind of how I used to play with dolls. Anyway, so so the thing I really liked about it was we go to Barbie Land and it's all everyone's happy and it's you know everyone there's women and Ken is there but he's not he's kind of a background player he doesn't really do much and also his mm-hmm. friend Arthur and there is was a little Ken friend doll but he only lasted a couple of years because girls didn't give a damn about Ken and honestly I don't think I ever had a Ken doll I used to use the GI Joe dolls if Barbie we needed may a have. date we went through a lot of a lot of different ken is not really important to a lot i don't think ken sells very well no and then when they go into the real world ken tags along with barbie spoiler alert and he sees how men are treated compared to in barbie land and so he gets kind of a big head on his shoulders and he goes back to barbie land and he decides he wants to make it a patriarchy like in the real world and it's just i just thought it was really clever and it was funny and I can see how it can piss some people off who are overly sensitive or don't want to face reality. It made a lot of really good points. Yeah. So I gave it an eight and a half. That's and I am going to probably see it again. Probably not at the movie theater. Yeah. Um, when it's on streaming, I'll watch it. But I did. I, I really, know a lot of men are upset about it. A lot of right-wingers are too. And they don't like the use of the word patriarchy, but it is a patriarchy. Why don't they like, you know, they don't want to admit it because then they have to give up their power. That's like saying people don't like the word racism. You know, I mean, I know what are we supposed to use different words for what's going on? I mean, I don't understand. There wouldn't be a word for it if it didn't exist. Put it that way. It's teaching a lesson without hitting you over the head with it. There were people of all ages in the movie Although I do think it's more for adults than little girls. And I don't know why it was marketed the way well, it, was. it was marketed. Like they did that, that marketing, like progressive insurance ads and all that yeah. shit. But the marketing was, it oh, didn't tell you what the Barbie movie was movie. about. No, right. No, it did and not so I at just all. assumed it was this product placement. And then also them pairing it with Oppenheimer is really bizarre too. I don't really want to see Oppenheimer. No, it got it got bad reviews because it makes a very interesting story boring. I've said it before. I always prefer a really well done documentary. Me too. Them actors acting out and they always overact right. and then the script is always written in to make someone heroic or right. Or and right, and they dramatic and and they change the facts of what happened. Yes. And stuff. And I, don't I don't want to like see that. it. Right. I don't want to see it either. No offense to all the you know people right. in the movie i'm happy for you but i would just rather see a good documentary about about anything i don't want to see like somebody on a we were talking about like what documentary was really good unbelievable or something and i said abducted in plain sight yeah and then they made a movie out of it and i'm like i would have no desire right. to see it. why right. see a movie based yeah. on that when well, you can just, see the real thing it's, and right. be shocked at reality you know i recently reread the book into thin air by john Krakauer, oh, yes yes and i know yeah and i've watched some mount everest documentaries 
on TV and I saw that they made a movie out of Into Thin Air and I'm like, as obsessed as I am with that book and stuff, I have absolutely no interest in seeing a movie. Especially if you are obsessed with the book. It will just drive you insane. Because it's going to get things wrong and and a lot of the points he makes in the book aren't things they'd be able to do well in the movie. No. And I have no interest. And a lot of times they miss a lot of the points. Real life is is so much more interesting yes it is except for fiction novels novels, right thank you good save yeah and are we gonna tell our listeners that we do have merch oh yeah yeah well our patreon they'll have gotten it by the time this comes out we're we're putting a link we have t-shirts and designed by rebecca on a bonfire account Yes. And then we have other merch, jigsaw puzzles and keychains. And um, Printify. And stuff in Printify. And our Patreon listeners have already gotten a newsletter with the links to those in it. It will be going on our website. If it's not on there when this drops, it will be going on very soon because and- the same reasons that are making us have trouble keeping to our schedule which we'll get back to after labor day are the same reasons that it's hard for me to update the website and stuff you know and i want to say that i have bought a few of those shirts on bonfire and they're very nice shirts good quality i like the way they fit which i can't say about a lot of t-shirts because you originally made i think i do the comfort colors right that's the one i bought for myself there's different yeah. You you originally did them for our family reunion. Yeah. And that was such a hit that you've done one with my author logo yes. on it and that you also designed the logo. And so we have a groovy tube, the podcast we will be getting back to very soon yes. and crime and stuff ones. And then that love kitty, a little kitty cat one. Yes. I'm doing some more of my own designs too, yeah. because it's fun yeah. and they make it easy to do. And the, right. the thing I like about the shirts too, is they're soft and the printed part that right. it isn't that is like soft, like really like. It, it, it doesn't feel. have like stiff rubbery print a couple people have wanted to know why i started doing it on bonfire because it was easy to use but i really like their design stuff on there but they don't have a lot of other right merch. and that's, that's why, why we have printify. Two, right that's why we and printify the printify merch that i've gotten has been really nice quality we did some puzzles that are nice so yeah we'll put the links on our site yeah and maybe i'll have some more stuff by that i keep right. making and stuff as people fun know to make stuff. yeah like as people know we aren't really what's the word we we don't do a lot of selling or no. asking for donations we are very grateful to our patreon donors <laughs> it helps pay for i mean yeah it may, even though we're doing this all ourselves there we do have costs and we don't have website, any advertising right, which people should be grateful for we don't want any fucking advertising i would... know i'm not i mean as a listener i'm not a big fan of ads but right. you know but, i can see why people do it right and, you know? and but like just a lot of the software and just the basic stuff we need to do this and there's monthly fees for yes. and then newspapers.com and all that and we're not like oh here begging for money and no. like we don't but we wanted to have merch and now, you know, we do. So. Yeah. And again, those links will be on our website, crimeandstuffonline.com. Also on our Facebook page. Uh, oh, on our Facebook page, right. Yeah. Um, Twitter, I have not. I, we're not I on don't, Twitter anymore. We're on wh- threads. There is no Twitter anymore. Right. right. We're on threads. We're kind of on threads. We're getting into threads right. and Instagram. 
you could always become a Patreon supporter. Just go on on our website. There's a button you can hit. And then you'll get our newsletter, which we send out photos from the scenes of some of our episodes and stuff. And we put those links on the newsletter. Yes. So thank you, everybody. See you next next time I'm doing it. Yeah, I are. think I know what I'm doing. Okay. I think I'm going to stick with what I pick so I can. I usually cut out this part of it when yeah. I edit it. Just yeah, I know. Okay, thank you, everybody. But usually I cut I'm it out. I'm trying to it's... say goodbye because we always know where to say goodbye. I know. So. I was going to say, I usually cut it out because it's too long and I have to find things everywhere to cut to make it like under two hours. But that is the problem tonight. So maybe I won't cut that out. But anyway, oh, I guess great. we should say goodnight, right? Good night, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for listening. He was born in Boston. Where'd you go? Where'd you go? And you're muted. You're muted and your video's off. Where did you go? Well, what are you doing? I was caught. I have to cough. Oh, sorry. I thought you were just going to like leave the room and not, um, and I'd think you were still there. Where are you going? What are you doing? I just want to be sure you're there. Okay. Yeah. I can't remember. I don't know. I'm tired. I only got like three hours of sleep last night. Okay. I don't remember enough about that because for some reason my mind kept wandering. I can't remember. I don't remember. I told you. I do not remember. I don't. I told you I wasn't listening. I was not listening. Why don't you listen to it?